in the universe. It's only one consciousness. When we understand that, we'll stop falling for the divide and conquer tactics. We'll stop falling for the poly tricks and all the other things that go along with these financial matrices and these religious systems. And once all that begins to fall away because of elevated ascended consciousness, we will then begin to treat each other with unconditional love and we will then bond and pair together and we will do one simple thing to end this whole regime of oligarchs is just we'll stop participating in their game. I believe right now that there are beings walking amongst us and you would never even know you were sitting down next to or talking to a person that wasn't even of this world. Check out our official website at fifthkind.tv Billy Carson is known around the world as a teacher of esoteric knowledge, a researcher of ancient wisdom, and the CEO of ForbiddenKnowledge.com. He's the author of the best-selling Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, and Woke Doesn't Mean Broke, and is a familiar face on Gaia TV. His research into ancient wisdom traditions makes him a sought-after speaker at summits and conferences around the world. Billy Carson, welcome to The Fifth Kind. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. We are really only going to be able to scratch the surface of all that you're into in this conversation because you really are a Renaissance man. But I want to begin, especially for anyone who's new to your work, right Mm -hmm. at the beginning for you and ask what it was at the outset that got you into the whole world of esoteric Mm -hmm. knowledge and ancient wisdom. Well, for me, it goes all the way back to 1977, believe it or not. So in 1977, my family moved from New York to Miami, Florida. And so we moved in this city called Opalaka. And there's an airport in Opalaka called the Opalaka Airport. It's a small private airport. And I would go out in the backyard and watch the planes go over. And so to me, it was amazing to see planes appear to be moving slow, even though I knew in my mind they had to be moving, moving, moving pretty fast because how would they stay in the air? Well, this one day when I was outside doing this, this object came across and it wasn't round like a flying saucer or a UFO uh, typical shape. It was more elongated, but not like a cigar, just like a very elongated, a stretched out um, oval. And it was really shiny uh, and like gleaming. What I could think I thought at the time looked like shiny metal. I don't really know what it was. And it went across the sky. It cleared the horizon in seconds, not minutes. And right away, I was like, whoa, what did I just see? And then it came back and it stopped much lower. Maybe now I can estimate about 200 meters above my head, completely silent. And then the next thing you know, gone the way that it came back in, completely silent. And even as a kid at the age of seven, I knew it didn't have a cockpit. It didn't have a tail. It didn't have wings. It didn't have a fuselage. I knew what I saw was not an airplane. So the next day I went to the uh, Rainbow Park Elementary School where I was going to school, four houses down from my house. I went straight to the library and I pulled out all the Encyclopedia Britannicas on aerospace. And I literally have started researching from 1977 till this current day. Aerospace is where I got started looking into the original Google, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes, that's right. And had anything like that happened within your family before? Were you the first in the Carson family to have a close encounter of that kind? Wow, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that question. So there is a situation that did occur that I found from my aunt, uh, who unfortunately, bless her heart, just died in 2020. She passed away from cancer. Uh, Now, my aunt was much older and lived in London, actually, most of her life. She left uh, in her teenage years to go to London to become a TV star. She actually accomplished that. She was in James Bond. She was in uh, some soap operas and a few other shows and movies. Uh, but she was kind of disconnected from the family uh, on this side for quite a while. It's only see her on the holidays. She didn't have the internet. She didn't have cell phones. And right before she passed away on her deathbed, she wanted to tell me something that was very interesting. My mom passed away four, uh, 13 years prior to her. And she said that I want to tell you something about what happened with myself and your mother. When we were kids growing up in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, uh, these, she didn't say aliens, but she said these advanced beings took us away. And, uh, you know, there's this place there from there we're standing. It was standing at this place that has these giant, I don't know, megalithic stones or granite stones, what I can imagine when she was trying to explain how big these stones were. 
And at that location is where they were taken away for a few hours and then brought back. I found it to be pretty interesting for somebody to tell me that on their deathbed. She didn't know I was forbidden knowledge. She doesn't know any about my TV shows, you know, Instagram, none of that kind of stuff. And I thought that was pretty interesting for her to want to share that with me, you know, while she's passing away. Absolutely. The reason I asked that question is that a lot of people, when they come to me and report their own experiences that -hmm. they're trying to process, I'll say, did your mom or dad have an experience like this? And they'll say, oh, no, I don't think so. I think they'd have told me. And then about a week later, they'll call me back and say, actually, I talked to my dad. (laughs) And he said, well, since you ask, son, I'll tell you what happened to you when I was 15 years old. So there's often a longer story. But you mentioned that the impact for you of that experience was that it turned you really into a researcher. Mm -hmm. And you began at the technology end of the spectrum. At Mm -hmm. some point, you have joined the dots with other fields of study and other academic disciplines, and you discovered the ancient world of Mesopotamia. Right. Can you tell me how you discovered that tradition and how it tied in with your technological uh, interests? Sure, definitely. It's really <laughs> it's a crazy story. So as I began to study uh, the technology, you know, I looked into delta wing, swept wing, ballistics. Uh, I was looking to, you know, uh, hypersonic, supersonic. I went to all the different aspects of aerospace that I could find. I couldn't find anything that looked like what I saw. And so, but I continued to study and research because now this whole field of aerospace had really captured my my soul and my heart, and I became dedicated to it. So I kind of became a quasi aerospace historian over many years as I just growing up. I was just obsessed with it. And much later on in life, I was working on a project where I was, um, you know, well, let me start first. First, I was looking out out into space with my saddle, with my telescope, and with my telescope, I started researching the precession of the equinoxes. The procession of the equinoxes and the speed in which the procession moves, uh, I realized that the 27,000 years is really more like 25,000 years. And I was trying to figure out what would cause the speeding of a of procession, of the movement of the stars, across the constellations across the sky. And I started looking into orbital mechanics. And when I started looking into orbital mechanics, I realized in order for our sun to move faster and slower, it must be orbiting something. So I started hypothesizing that maybe we are orbiting uh, another large rogue planet, or maybe even orbiting another star. And come to find out our sun is actually orbiting a brown dwarf star, which is now peer-reviewed science, which is actually yes. trying to change all the astrophysics books. And so that got me to that whole realm of you know looking into space. And now during this process, I realized there were cataclysms that were being caused on Earth around this orbital cycle of this intertwining of the gravitational fields of the stars, creating havoc throughout the entire solar system. And so I realized, okay, let me start this project. I wanted to build an underground shelter. So I built this underground city is what it turned out to be. Uh, It's the size of three Walmarts underground. It's in Northwest Georgia. I was on the History Channel because of this. This is one of the first times I made TV in 2012 because of this giant project I was working on, a $20 million project. Now, the, the significance of this is during the time that I was working on this project and it was getting all this notoriety around the, the world, uh, all of a sudden, I was in my house one day after a long day's work working on this specific project, and all the lights in my uh, in my family room went dim. They turned lavender. The TV I was watching went off. I was watching ESPN. It was I wasn't tired yet. It was only like 9 p.m. I looked over my left shoulder to see if my boys were playing a trick on me, a prank. No boys on that side. Nothing going on. But when I turned my head back around, two what I can only say to you would be the typical gray aliens right in my face within inches of my face. And I'm sitting down on a chair much about this same height. So they must've been no more than four feet, four and a half feet max. Um, Their eyes, I still can't tell if they were really eyes or if it was some type of apparatus. It was very strange. They Mm. didn't give me any telepathic communication, but what happened for me at least uh, was that my brain literally started shaking in my skull. I tried to scream, no sound was coming out. There were people in the house. at that time, I was actually married. My wife was home. She heard nothing. My, my girls on the other side heard nothing. My kids heard nothing. My boys heard nothing. And then it, just as fast as it started, it stopped. And they kind of, they don't really have a walking gait like a human, but they kind of dangled or bounced away. And they went through the wall. The lights came back. The TV came back. And I was completely shock, shocked. I was torn up. It scared the heck out of my family. It took years for me to start talking about this because it was actually 
one of the catalysts for my divorce. <laughs> so I, I gained nothing out of this. Um, mm. And I saw I sought no popularity from it either. But that interesting event did something special, how I got into ancient civilizations. After this happened, the phrase worldwide telescope was burnt into my brain. It just kept playing over and over and over and over again. Worldwide telescope, worldwide telescope, nonstop, to the point where, where it was like hundreds of times. I went to my computer, and back then, Google was just competing still with all, all the other search engines. So I went to Excite.com, and I typed in worldwide telescope. It's still in business till this, till this very day. Worldwidetelescope.org is the first thing that popped up on the search result. I almost fell out of my chair. I click on it, takes me to a website where I can access all the space probe data from all the missions ever sent into space. And the first one I see is, I say, okay, let me click on Mars. And then I go, oh, panoramas. Let me click on that. And then it gave me Spirit Rover. It gave me Opportunity Rover. Uh, and it gave me all these different areas that the, the rovers were in. So I clicked on uh, Opportunity. And I go in there and I'm looking around. I'm in McMurdo Valley. And, other, and I start seeing anomalies, things that don't appear to be like they, they, they don't appear to be rocks. And they don't, they shouldn't be where they were. And that's what got me into anomaly hunting. But the things I saw looked like things from ancient civilizations on Earth. And I'm like, wait a minute. Whoa, is this real? And the more I researched, I found out it was real. And these images weren't obfuscated and still aren't obfuscated yet on that particular um, access to the, the space probe data. And so I started making a correlation between ancient civilizations and these space anomalies. And I started hypothesizing, could these Anunnaki beings or these Atlantean people have been an interplanetary civilization? Uh, and could they be connected? And that's what I came to find out. My total hypothesis is that, yes, they are the same people. Yes, they are connected. And yes, they were on different planets and moons in this solar system. Wow, there's so much in your answer there. I want to flag one thing you mentioned in passing, that experiencing a uh, close encounter, as you described there, a close encounter of the fourth kind, is a very isolating experience. Yeah, It, it yeah. doesn't help anyone to have an no. experience like that. It doesn't give you an advantage to get a better job or improve your relationships, quite the reverse. Yeah. So I thank you for mentioning that part of the story. You were well ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing these anomalies in the images from Mars. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking about it now. What are we yeah. seeing on the surface now? And beginning to talk about how it relates to previous civilizations. Mm -hmm. What was it that you found in the ancient cuneiforms that told you that what you were reading about there had a relationship with what you were seeing on the surface of Mars? Yeah, so a great question. I started looking in, into the Sumerian tablets. Originally, I came across the work of Zachariah Sitchin, uh, which before he was being ridiculed and, and everything else, and I realized that he was giving the location of his sources for his wh where he got his ideas. People think that he made all this stuff up. No, he was using source material, and I found that he was using material that was already translated long yes. before he was born. I said, holy crap, this stuff is not what people think. you got to read these tablets. So I said, how can I find these tablets? I got into the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation, and I also got into the Epic of Atrahasis. Both of them tell an incredible tale of the creation of the solar system, as well as the explosion of Tiamat, how Earth was formed from the remnants of Tiamat, how the asteroid belt formed, and also how there were beings that came to this solar system after it kind of healed and recoalesced. They created a breakaway civilization on Earth, and they also had a civilization running concurrently on Mars, and the people that were working these breakaway civilizations, doing the hard, harder labor, were the working class Anunnaki people. They call them the Ejiji in the Sumerian cuneiform tablets, the Ejiji. And these people were doing the work and the labor, and they were coming back and forth to and fro from Earth to Mars on a consistent basis. The point you made there that I think is really important is that Zechariah Sitchin was working off translations that were widely accepted yeah. concerning the meaning of the ancient cuneiforms. As you say, mm -hmm. it wasn't Sitchin who was creating this uh, interplanetary storyline. Right. It was there in the tablets. So how do you think it is that that information had lain dormant for so long until Zechariah Sitchin came along and said, hey, everybody, do you realize <laughs> what this means? Yeah, you know, what happened was the story is so incredible and so mind-blowing 
the average person can't wrap their mind around a civilization that could be potentially one million years ahead of us technologically, but that occurred, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So it's hard for us because we have such we're, human beings are such egotistical beings. It's hard to wrap our mind around that. So the tablets kind of just uh, fell to the wayside. They really weren't oppressed or suppressed in any kind of heavy way, to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, I think that a lot of Hollywood producers had gotten their hands on some of these tablets and started utilizing them yes. to create things like Star Wars and Star Trek and all these other star and space type films, taking pieces of them and adding their own creativity to it to create their own masterpieces out of them. Uh, and it's like, look, nobody's reading these tablets. We'll use this to make these great movies. And it worked. And then all of a sudden, Zachariah Sitchin, stum you know, he stumbles across a few of these tablets and starts realizing, wow, there's a lot here. And he reawakened everyone to the fact that these tablets are real, they exist, and they're fully accessible. Matter of fact, the entire cuneiform library is available on UCLA, uh, the UCLA CDLI cuneiform online digital library when anybody can go there for free, grab a stone off the shelf, and drop it right into a translator digitally and decode it and read it for themselves. We had to know something at theological college when I was training to be a minister mm. about the Mesopotamian literature because it's pretty clear that they are the source documents for the stories we're familiar with in the Bible. And I found what happened to us is that this was sort of noted and then you handed your list of essays to write for your degree and, and you pick a different topic yeah. and you never go back to the implications of, hold on, what does it mean that many of our God stories are based on stories of ET contact? Right. And it really was, for me, just a matter of time of joining the dots, having the time to go back and say, wait a minute, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. What relationship do you find between the religions that we're familiar with that have grown up on planet Earth yeah. and our ancestors' experience of ET contact? Oh, man, great question. You see, the ancients, our ancestors, they're telling us exactly what happened. If anyone understands how hard and difficult it is to write in cuneiform onto clay and let it dry and become stone, it's a tedious process. You don't sit around underneath a tree and say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to wedge out about two or three hundred of these stone tablets right? <laughs> to make up an amazing story. I mean, you know I mean, it just didn't happen that way. You got work to do. You got to you got to toil the fields and get food on the table. So this was important information, probably as close to the truth as we're possibly going to get. And what I found is that when you look into these ancient texts and scriptures and cylinder scrolls and papyruses, you're finding out the fundamental basis of what religion is right now. They've taken, taken from pieces of these texts, the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tabs of Creation, the Epic of Atrahasis, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is primarily the, story, the full story of Noah, and the, and the Enuma Elish, mm -hmm. you get the creation story. Uh, you get separating the waters from the waters and all of that stuff, right? Yes. And then you also get uh, into the some of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which makes it into some of the Old Testament and Proverbs. You, look, you get some of the Mahabharata, and there are even some of the Bhagavad Gita. And then in the Newer Testament, you're getting, uh, where Jesus is speaking, you're getting a lot of the Emerald Tablets of Thoth from 36,000 years ago. Jesus was just regurgitating what he learned in the mystery schools when he went to Egypt at the age of 12. So it's pretty interesting that the, the, the powers that be, they handpicked different pieces of information to create this canonized Bible. Uh, and, and really, when you look into some of these ancient texts, you go, well, how come their names aren't in these? Well, look, Marduk. Marduk is in the Sumerian cuneiform tablets, which predates the Bible by thousands of years. He's in the Bible and he's in the Torah. All these names, they're in there. Enlil and all these, they're all in these texts, but it's just been kind of overlooked and these are the same people that masqueraded as gods, plural with an S, in these books, which then, uh, due to the process of editing, they took the S off of the word God and made it singular to usher in the monotheistic mindset. But in the original translation, it's gods with an S. And there's actually multiple gods being spoken about in the Bible, not just one. These are these Anunnaki Atlantean people that were battling for uh, you know, control of humans and resources on Earth. You and I are absolutely on the same page uh, in all that regard. You have a massive following around the world who, when you say things like that, will say, yeah, go, Billy. But do you still find you get a lot of pushback from the religious world when you come out and present this information? 
Yeah, there's pushback. There's always, you know, people that that want to challenge because they're so wrapped into the religion because they've been born and they've been given the name race and they were given their religion right at birth. And so now they're spending the rest of their life trying to defend, trying to defend a false identity. And so they're so encased and engulfed in it that there's like being immersed inside of a hologram. You can't tell you're in a hologram because you're inside of it. And so they're immersed in that matrix of that religious matrix, and they can't even find a way that there could be a, a slight way out. And they're so yeah. immersed in it, they believe it's their it's their whole being, and it makes up their complete belief system. And so once you start to tear down a person's belief system, it puts them in psychological and sometimes physiological pain, and they yes. become they move from a they move from a, a prisoner to a prison guard mindset, and now they want to guard that identity. Uh, you know, yeah. so human beings are both the prisoners and we're also the prison guards. So this is the Agent Smith syndrome. Yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Your best-selling title, Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, takes us into the world of ancient Egyptian mythology. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what those tablets are and why they are important? Oh, wow. These tablets are the most amazing things I've ever come across in a long time. About now, almost 11 years ago, I came across the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. These are ancient writings that were authored and written by Thoth himself. Thoth is a Atlantean. He claims to be an Atlantean priest king, a son of Atlantis that ruled over the land of Kem long before it was called Egypt. For he ruled over Kem for 14,000 years. Now, that, that's even according to the ancient Egyptians. It's etched into stone in Egypt, so you can't deny that the ancients uh, agree with this. Uh, and what's interesting is um, he was known as the the, 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 the the first intelligencer, the person that brought knowledge and wisdom, languages to the planet. Uh, mm -hmm. In the land of chems, he taught chemistry and alchemy, and he alchemically created these tablets, which he uh, put on this emerald green type stone. Uh, and, and these tablets are really giving you the key not only to life, enlightenment, how to ascend to higher dimensions. Uh, he's talking about technology in there flying ships that can fly into space. He's talking about weapons that can stun people and freeze them in their tracks. He's talking about having the power to transfer consciousness into a cloned avatar body. And he's even talking about walking through stargates. It's like an amazing space story combined with, uh, you know, an amazing empathetic story about how one being decided to put a crew together and fly around Earth after the Great Flood and help re-kickstart civilization for humans all over the planet. Now, you describe him as an Atlantean, an Anunnaki. What exactly do you think Thoth was? Great question. So Anunnaki is a generalized term. So like, for example, if we were to leave Earth and go to Mars and we met some people on Mars that were Martians, they would say, well, who are you? What are you guys? Well, we're Earthlings, right? But I'm really a Floridian from Florida in America. So you can break it down to levels. And so Anunnaki just means uh, those who came from heaven to Earth. But the Atlantean was the name of the actual civilization. They had this Atlantean civilization that not was just not was just not a ring city that Plato talked about. That's where people get a little confused. They think, oh, there was this place called Atlantis. No, Earth was Atlantis. The entire planet. We're all yeah. right now, wherever you are on this planet, you're sitting on top of Atlantis. It was a now, civilization. It's a civilization, yeah. a global. They, we had capitals. That ring city that sunk in the Atlantic Ocean was one of many capitals of Atlantis, and they were also interplanetary. They weren't just on Earth. Going back to Thoth for a moment, when we find him depicted uh, in the Annals of Ancient Egypt, he's depicted with the head of an ibis. Yeah. Now, how do we read that? Is that symbology, or did people simply paint what they saw? That's symbology for Thoth, and the reason why is because an ibis bird, uh, it's a, it, it has its very long beak. Now, the way that it gets its sustenance, it has to stick its beak deep into mud. So the ibis bird sticks its beak deep into mud to get its food, to bring up sustenance. And it, so it's an uh, allegory of kind of bringing darkness to light is why they give him the, the, yeah. the head of the ibis bird. So it's not really his face. His face actually used to be on the sphinx. The original face on the great sphinx in Egypt was not the face that's there now, and it was never a lion's face. It was Thoth's face. His father, Enki, ordered it to be his face. After, after Thoth and his brother, Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, got into a couple of battles, and Thoth's dad said, look, man, go to the other side of the planet and start that Mesoamerican civilization over there and leave your brother over here. 
And so once he left, his brother recarved the face, which is why that head that's on there now is too small. He recarved the face of Thoth down to his own son's face. So the head that's on the Great Sphinx now is Thoth's nephew's face. But you can see quite easily that these are human features. Anyone familiar with Doctor Who is familiar with the idea of a sort of a great tutor to humanity, someone who's here to assist humanity's progress and a being that can incarnate in a succession of human avatar bodies. And that's how you describe Thoth. Tell yeah. us a bit more about that idea and what that means for how long Thoth was on planet Earth with us. Man, he has this thing called the Halls of Amenti. And so the Halls of Amenti is this amazing place that I believe I discovered one of them in Egypt, which I'm going back again to document it even more in October of this year. Uh, there were There's many Halls of Amenti. The one I found, I believe, is his father's, Enki or Ptah. But the one that he used was underneath the Great Pyramid. Now, what's interesting is about... Three and a half, no, four and a half years ago now, they found these halls underneath the Great Pyramid. They're all empty now, but these are these giant halls that were engineered and they go on for miles. Pretty interesting. Now, in these halls, he had this these chambers. He called them rejuvenation chambers. And he would actually create bodies or create these avatar bodies, not from cloning other people but actually creating his own clones. How the particular process or technique, mm -hmm. nobody really knows. But then what he would do is he would transfer his consciousness into one of these avatar bodies. He said he would walk amongst men, but unlike a man. You wouldn't even know that he was walking around in this bodysuit, basically. And then while he uh, was doing that, other bodies that he had already used in the past were be put back into these different chambers that he had. He had many of them. And they would sit there for 100 years. So every 100 years, he'd go back and hop in a new body. He's done that 10 times 100. I mean, the guys, that's just 10,000 years alone right there. But if you look at the time frame in between that he waits to go and get another body and add it all together, it's, it's getting close to 100,000 years. We're talking about beings that have discovered a way of obtaining immortality by transferring their consciousness, which is what we're doing right now. In Russia, they transferred a monkey's consciousness with the 2045 project into a computer. The monkey's body is gone dead. The monkey is still alive in the computer. And by 2045, they want to be able to do that with humans. A human, take a cell, a, a cell from a human, turn it into a stem cell, which they can do now, then clone your body to the age specified with no disease in it, then transfer your consciousness into that new avatar body. Uh, so it's pretty interesting that we're getting to that level. So we're kind of rediscovering what already happened in the ancient past. Indeed. I was going to ask, uh, you talked about the idea of Thoth walking among humans without being spotted, moving around inconspicuously. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that that relates to our experiences today? Do we have company from elsewhere in the cosmos or from other dimensions that we're not spotting because it's moving around inconspicuously? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You know, there's a good show that just came out on Amazon Prime. It's called The Man That Fell to Earth. It's a, it's a remake of an old classic. And what I like about this remake is they really put a great spin on it. And you can see that this alien being from another planet coming here to look for technology to help his home planet that he could create over there. But he's walking around in a humanoid suit. In other words, the skin and everything else that, that's on his body that makes him look human is actually his spacesuit. And so it's pretty, there's so many, I like the way that they kind of twist, you know, he's not walking around in something tech, that appears to be technological. It looks yes. biological. And so I believe right now that there are beings walking amongst us, completely cloaked in these uh, human humanoid bodysuits uh, and able to speak and interact. And you would never even know you were sitting down next to or talking to a person that wasn't even of this world. Uh, and just like we do when we go to the wilderness, like you see on a National Geographic, uh, you know, a show where we go out into the wilderness and we begin to hide in these what they call hides. And we, we videotape these animals and we we put in, hidden cameras inside of their den so we can check them out. We want to monitor them and watch how they live and how they thrive or don't thrive. And then we even alien abduct these animals by shooting them with a dart, tranquilizing them. Now they have lost time. We take them away to a laboratory. We We take fluids from them. We inject an uh, alien tracking device in them. We put them back in the wild. It's the same thing happening to us. 
It is. It's exactly the same thing. It's a little bit lowering when you um, sort of wake up to the possibility that we might be some mid-ranking species in the great cosmic family. And it yeah. takes people a bit of adjusting to. But I've come to that conclusion, and I hear that echoed in ancestral narratives, world mythology from all around the world. Yeah. I want to go back to the technology question because I've heard you speak a number of times on the amazing mathematical properties and correlations that relate to the Giza plane mm. and yeah. the mathematics of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Mm -hmm. That tells us that pre-dynastic Egypt had advanced science and advanced technology. Can you yeah. say a little bit more about where that science came from and then where it went? Absolutely. So what's interesting, when you look at the Great Pyramid and Giza Plateau, you begin to realize that it's an absolute architectural masterpiece. Now, what's interesting about the actual mathematics encoded into the Giza Plateau, the surrounding temples, and also into the Great Pyramid and all the surrounding pyramids, it's a mathematical system that allows us to predict a lot of incredible things. For example, encoded into the Great Pyramid, is the actual speed of the Earth around the sun. Also encoded into the Great Pyramid is the speed of the sun around the galaxy. I mean, <laughs> these are things that can't be coincidences. Uh, and you can also calculate based on the size of the pyramid stones themselves and the base. You can calculate things like the distance to the sun and the distance to the moon. You can even calculate an astronomical unit, an AU, which is a... Uh, a, a space of measurement used to measure how far a planet is away from our yellow sun, an AU. And so that's all uh, encoded in there. If you look at the Giza Plateau from the top down, from high level down, and you look at the surrounding pyramids and the temples, I have a great animated video that shows you when you connect lines in a specific way, you create this pattern that allows you to make a complete to scale image of the interplanetary solar system in other words, you have uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and then Mars, and you have them down precise to scale to the astronomical unit and the sun directly in the middle. So Giza itself, the plateau, is actually a map of the interplanetary solar system that we have right here uh, where we live. Pretty interesting. And also the height of the Great Pyramid is the average height of all the landmass peaks on Earth. To do that, you need an orbiting polar satellite orbiting the planet this way and scanning the planet as it rotates on its axis so that you can take all the topographical data. You can calculate all the heights, count the total number of peaks, divide them by the average height. And when you get that number, then you can build a pyramid to that height. The other thing is that the Great Pyramid is located at the direct center of landmass on Earth, not the center of the Earth, the center of landmass, which means you need a polar orbiting satellite to calculate landmass and find that exact spot, boom, where to put the Great Pyramid. Now, all this is encoded into the Great Pyramid, and it's there's so much more I could talk for probably 10 hours mm. on, on it. And you can calculate the, the, the actual um, circumference of the sun. I mean, the numbers are, the amount of mathematics that are encoded into it is just incredible. The science of pre-dynastic Egypt really is mind-boggling. We've also got references, certainly in pictorial form, in the hieroglyphics, among the hieroglyphics, I should say, of ancient technology mm -hmm. um, that was using sound to move enormous blocks, uh, things like that. What happened to that technology? Is it all buried in the vaults of the Smithsonian? <laughs> well, some of it is in the Smithsonian. Some of it is buried underneath the Vatican. The majority of things discovered that are left without being destroyed from just time are, are at the Vatican. A lot of people have to realize that these great pyramid structures and these ancient temples are all built out of stone. They were designed to last the test of time. But the technology that was inside of them, uh, the handmade technologies that were put together and put inside of them to use to work in conjunction with these energetic locations, that technology in a lot of cases was either taken away or over time, it literally just turned back into dust, rusted away, turned into dust just based on being exposed to the bare elements. Uh, and then whatever was discovered was then swiped away and taken away either to the Smithsonian, uh, the Vatican, and even some most likely uh, some of the really deep, buried, incredible technologies taken away to different militaries to, and space agencies for investigation and research into what they could have been. What I find interesting is that some of that technology 
is referenced not only in the world of ancient Egypt, it's there in the Mesopotamian texts, it's there in the Bible as well, just a translation away from being blindingly obvious. Yeah. And in my research, I found this amazing fluid relationship between those three cultures, three traditions, three civilizations. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about what you discovered of the connection between the biblical tradition around Moses and the world of ancient Egypt. Wow. The Moses uh, story is really an amazing story for a couple of reasons. The first reason is if you really look at the story of Akhenaten, Pharaoh Akhenaten, you discover that there was an actually there was actually a Pharaoh. This Pharaoh was the father of Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun, or King Tut, as we call him. Uh, now, Akhenaten had a very elongated head, a very strange, weird-shaped body, and he started worshiping Aten, the sun disk, or also Amun-Ra, also known as Amun-Ra. And he was getting direct instruction from Amun-Ra. He was telling him, look, I'm the only God. I'm the one and only God. There'll be no other God but me. And also, I'm a jealous God and so forth and so on. A lot of quotes that made it into the biblical text. And mm. what he was telling uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten is he wanted him to usher in monotheism. So he had Akhenaten start to go around Egypt with the military and start to chip away all the noses and faces and all the other of, of all the other gods, no matter where they were, whether they were statues, whether they were hieroglyphs, chip them away. And today, when you go to Egypt, you find out thousands of years before other people even came in, this Pharaoh Akhenaten, other other groups of people to take over Egypt, you find out that Akhenaten had already chipped away a lot of the history uh, in some of these temples. And the reason why he was doing this, he was trying to honor the one and only God, ushering monotheism. Uh, and bring in this one God religious mindset. Uh, and so the people around him, they was like, man, this guy's erasing our history. We got to get rid of this guy. So they start to put a lot of pressure on him and banish him from Egypt. But he goes into the Great Pyramid and he takes the Ark of the Covenant out of that stone box. That stone box in the top of the king's chamber is actually the exact dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, which was needed to power the Great Pyramid because it had lost its power slightly because the aquifer that used to run up right close to the pyramid and run underneath it had, had slowly over time moved away from the Great Pyramid, kind of breaking its technology. So the um, the Ark of the Covenant was the, the finishing piece to help continue to allow it to generate wireless power. He snatched that and took all the followers that he had acquired into this one world religion and fled out of Egypt. This is why Pharaoh came after him in the biblical story. It's not because he had a change of heart, like it says in the you know, in the book, it's because he realized that the Ark of the Covenant had been snatched and the source of power was taken away. It would knock them back into the Stone Ages. And so he then sent all the chariots after him. Now, he didn't in, in the in the Bible. There's a mistranslation. He did not cross the Red Sea. He crossed the Sea of Reeds, which is a much smaller, easier to cross and nearby sea. He did cross the Red Sea, a re Sea of Reeds. Now, what's interesting, if you do a geological rewind on the tectonic plate activity in the region, which we can do now through computer simulations, you find that around that same time period, there was actually a huge earthquake, which would have caused a tsunami. Now, tsunamis suck water out, and then it comes crashing back sometimes two or three hours later. It would have been a perfect opportunity or perfect timing, so to speak, for them to cross the Sea of Reeds before the water came crashing back to drown the, uh, the chariots coming uh, that was ordered to kill them by the pharaoh, uh, the new pharaoh. So it's pretty interesting how they how this whole story kind of laid out. But um, I really do believe that Moses, the story of Moses is more, in my opinion, might be more likely uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten. And that yes. the story is a little bit off there, but pretty interesting that after he goes in, in the Moses story, he goes up to the mountain and he gets these 10 commandments, do, you know, thou shall not kill. Then he comes down and he kills everybody for making a calf. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a lot of well, contradictions in that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Do you have a theory as to what the Ark of the Covenant was and what happened to it? Yeah. So the Ark of the Covenant was a technological device that was a real incredible power source. It may have been even a nuclear power source, because when you read the description of what happens when you're not wearing the right type of attire to handle yes. it, you see that the people are having what appears to be radiation sickness, hair falling right. out. Uh, you know, eyes bleeding, nails falling out, uh, vomiting and all these things, all these signs. If you touch it in the wrong spot where there's this electrical charge, you die instantaneously because it's going to stop your heart. And so I believe that it was a highly 
a high power, highly charged device that ran potentially off of nuclear power or had some source of extreme radiation that would come out of it, which is why they had to have the breastplate and all these other things on when they handled it. Uh, and I believe that there were more than one uh, um, Ark of the Covenant. I think that there was actually three Arks of the Covenant based on some of the texts that I've read. There's the descriptions of these things in various different texts. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, these things have seem seemingly disappeared. Now, one, what more recently was discovered to be in Ethiopia at a church in Ethiopia and being mm -hmm. guarded by the church priest. However, once that story aired about this, I think it aired on Discovery Channel about 10 years, eight years ago, within a year, somebody had broke in and stole it. They didn't have a military. They just took it. So the last one that we knew where it potentially could have been is now gone as well. The other two, one could have been uh, lost to time. And the other one could be in some military bunker somewhere. <laughs> now, this question might sound like a non sequitur to people who don't know you, but and I'm asking for my own benefit, really. But what is your secret, Billy? I'm not going to give away your age, but how is it that you stay looking so young and fit and healthy? <laughs> what are you doing that the rest of us need to be doing? Um, well, one thing is uh, you got to get a blood panel. Get, go to the doctor, get a blood panel done, and find out all your levels of nutrients, minerals, uh, finding your, your full health is all in your blood. So find out what that is. Take that blood panel to a licensed dietitian. Let them analyze and look at it. And then create a specialized diet specifically for your blood panel, specifically for what your body needs, and, and stick to that diet. It's just for you. It's personalized. You shouldn't be getting on this diet or that diet because it's the next big thing. It should be your diet. Every individual person should have their own individual specialized diet. The other thing is I've been taking colloidal silver and monoatomic gold for over 20 years now, uh, mm -hmm. just a couple of teaspoons every single day with some lemon. Uh, whether it's working or not, I don't know. But I tell you, I've only had eight colds in my entire life. The last time I had a cold was 1999, midnight. It was going into 2000. And I got a phone call from a relative to say Happy New Year. And I had the sniffles for about three or four days. Uh, but I haven't had a cold since then. I haven't had the new sickness either. Uh, but those things that I do. And then of course I do a lot of walking. I like to walk uh, on the beach or walk in wilderness. And so I get a lot of nature walks. I'm out a lot, a lot of meditation, uh, you know, and I try to be as peaceful as I can. I try to operate in peace. I try to keep people away that aren't, that are robbing me of my peace or going to rob, rob me of my peace. I keep them at arm's length and I'm very, very careful where I let in my circle. Cause all I want to do is I want to operate in pure peace. I want peace in my house. I want peace where I walk. I don't want any drama at all. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. You've got an amazing ability, Billy, at joining the dots and retrieving the wisdom of the ages. Why is it that it keeps getting lost, that every generation seems to have to piece this information together again from scratch? Yeah. It's this situation where, you know, if we had a cataclysm right now, and uh, it, it, it like, for example, if we had an EM pulse that knocked out all all electronic technology right now, mm. we all know how to use a cell phone. We all know how to use a TV, but we don't specifically know how to make a cell phone or make a TV. And then on top of that, all that technology is uh, it works off of multiple inventions that are coalesced together in collusion to make them actually work and to rebuild that entire system could take generations or maybe even end up being lost. and then. Some somewhere down the line, by the tenth generation, they kickstart again. They, they learn how to make these links and make it make it from scratch and rediscover it. So, what happens in in our time period with all this ancient information and ancient wisdom and knowledge? Over time, it gains popularity and it goes up, and then it's accepted by a lot. And sometimes it even has helped us to get into a golden age. But then, either through cataclysm or uh, or through uh, suppression and oppression, through a collapse of a golden age. The information gets suppressed and hidden away. After two or three generations, it's completely forgotten. Nobody remembers anything about it. It's got to be dug up and reach. Our steps have to be retraced all over again from scratch and bringing out that ancient history and that ancient knowledge. And so that we can help the next generation, you know, catch up. So we have to find a way to stop this cycle of rise and fall. And at some point we can do it because I haven't read a book or a text anywhere that says we have to keep doing that. We have to keep rising and falling. It seems to be that. 
if the smartest generation is going to figure out how to get to a golden age and how to actually sustain it. Well, that was going to be my next question. How do we make the most of this cycle of civilization? How do we get ourselves to a golden age? What we have to do is we have to realize an important thing. There is only one person in the entire universe, not on the planet, in the universe. It's only one consciousness. And that one consciousness has divided itself into Googles of entities throughout the entire space time so that it can experience itself subjectively as different beings and entities. It, it, wants, it even wants to know what it's like to be a rock or a blade of grass. And yes. once we can understand that we're all part of this one mass consciousness, call it God, call it nature, whatever you want, because we're all a part of that and the divine energy that's beaming or being streamed from that is in every atom in our body. We are all walking gods and there is no difference between me, you or anyone else. And when we when we stop, when we understand that we'll stop falling for the divide and conquer tactics. We'll yes. stop falling for the poly tricks and all the other things that go along with these financial matrices and these religious systems. And once all that begins to fall away because of elevated ascended consciousness, we will then begin to treat each other with unconditional love and we will then bond and pair together. And we will do one simple thing to end this whole regime of oligarchs is just we'll stop participating in their game. We'll, we'll actually synchronize. And at one point, the game is over. We stop participating. It'll only take two or three weeks. No wars, no fighting, no rioting in the streets. We just stop. And then we force them to negotiate with us and we create the brand new paradigm. And that's when it's going to shift. Oh, well said. I love that image of the universe, that there's only one person in the cosmos, that idea of a fractalized cosmos. Yeah. For some, it's a very stretching concept. It's actually very old. It's yeah. there in Plato. Mm -hmm. How did you discover this idea and how has it impacted you? You know, I was studying quantum physics at Khan University, K-H-A-N, and um, I came across you know, all the, you know, the, the double slit experiment and wave particle duality in particular. And then I was like, man, this is pretty interesting stuff. So electrons make conscious decisions to be solid matter or waves. And then photons do the same thing. And everything exists as a wave, a wave of potentials before it even becomes collapsed into matter based on conscious intervention. So the reality came to me, the only thing that does exist is consciousness. And it's all the same one. It's all the same consciousness. What it is, is one radio station, imagine, right? And that one radio station in your neighborhood is broadcasting out 99.1, each avatar body encapsulates a particular dot number of that frequency. And that frequency animates our avatar body so we can experience life in this dimension. But we're all coming from the same source. So uh, an adjacent question to that is, are we living in a holographic universe? Oh, yeah. We are living in a fractal holographic universe. There's no doubt in my mind about that. If you look into the research from the expert in supersymmetry, Professor James Gates Jr., who used to be the scientific uh, advisor for President Obama. This guy is a, one of the world leaders in theoretical physics. He put together an all-star team of some of the top minds in the world in supersymmetry and quantum physics and theoretical physics. And they started analyzing the ether of space-time itself. And they came across something really ancient that linked to something really current, uh, Adinkra codes. The Adinkra codes from the ancient Dogons, when you turn them into three-dimensional images, these paintings that they used to do and put them on clothing and everything and blankets, they become mathematical codes. But not just any mathematical code, they become the mathematical code that run the ether of space-time. These are error-correcting codes, the same exact kind of codes that run search engines and web browsers. That is what's controlling the nature of the reality. That's the software coding. Reality itself is now we found out exists, exists as waves of light. So we're living in a fractalized holographic light matrix that's encoded with error correcting codes, the same kind that we have rediscovered and put into our own internet. I think one of the really exciting things about discovering this whole world of holographic universe is to realize that more things are possible than we thought. I think when you're trapped in the old Newtonian paradigm, yeah. there's cause and effect. What you see is what you get. Yeah. 
as soon as you realize, no, actually, this is a projection of something else, it's all codes, you realize that something that might look like non-causality mm. could really be possible, that there are more options available to us. So I find it a very exciting area of study. Yeah. Just to change gear slightly, in 2020, you published Woke Doesn't Mean Broke. Yeah. What's the connection between financial literacy and the whole world of um, esoterica, mm -hmm. holographic universe? How do these things connect? You know, that's a great question. So when I look into when I began to become an expert in financial uh, information and financial literacy, uh, I noticed that a lot of the gurus, uh, these big time CEOs of corporations, and a lot of these big time guys that are in the stock market and the stock exchange and making all this money. They really have perfected the understanding of how esoteric wisdom affects their decisions on what they do in the stock market. And so I was like, wow, these people are doing amazing things, understanding esoteric fundamentals and then using that to make predictions on the market. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. So I said, I wonder if there's a link here. As I looked into fractals, I saw that fractals even permeate the financial systems. You can use fractals to predict the outcome of the rise and fall of stocks and even stock options and futures and commodities. And I was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. There's really something here, mm. even the moon cycles, you know. And so I dug into it and I realized, OK, this is great. Let me start to experience uh, experiment with this for myself. And I started becoming very successful with it. And so I realized I said, you know what? Understanding financial literacy is very important. The majority of people can't even understand the basics of financial literacy. And they've been taken uh, down by thinking that if you're spiritual or you're trying to achieve this ascension, wisdom and knowledge, you have to be a poor pauper and you have to be begging for change. And, you you know, having nice things is a sin. And I want to tear that whole paradigm down yes. because at, at the end of the day, if we're out here talking about how powerful we are, how in, how incredible we are as beings and how we have the power to manifest and all this kind of stuff, and we can't manifest a light bill, then we're not applying that knowledge. Uh, and so I decided to write the book, Woke Doesn't Mean Broke, to show how spiritual concepts can combine with financial literacy. And when you put the two together, you have a dynamo that will allow you to navigate this financial matrix in a way that most people can't. And it will help you get to the next level. Because in order for us to help change this world, something else has to happen. We also have to obtain financial literacy and we have to obtain people that have financial means. We're not going to be able to change the world sitting at a computer or a cell phone in a robe and slippers making memes all day and posting them <laughs> on Instagram, <laughs> okay? At some point, we got to get into positions of power, which takes money. And the more money we generate for ourselves, the more we can help others and create our own society and civilizations as well. So we have to understand how this matrix works. So I wrote that book. Nicely put. Thank you. In 2022, you are up to something with our friends Rex Bear, Matt yeah. LaCroix, and Jay Campbell. What are you guys up to together? We uh, had done a podcast a couple of times in the last few years called Decoders of Truth, just as a regular web you know, YouTube podcast. And I said, you know, guys, I've got the TV network now, Forbidden Knowledge TV. We should do something really, you know, well produced, better than the, just the standard thing and get together in the same room at the same time and create a series called Decoders of Truth. So we we filmed an entire series here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, and it's now actually all edited and ready to go. The first episode aired, I believe, yesterday at 4.44 p.m. on Forbidden Knowledge TV. And these topics are like mind-blowing esoteric topics that are blowing people away. The, the cameraman, when he was filming it, he was having to stop a few times because his brain was exploding. And he was texting his wife saying, we got to watch this show. I'm like, you're filming the show, man. <laughs> yeah. so, but uh, make sure we're in the frame. But uh, but it's really going to be an amazing series. It's eight episodes in season one, and we're ex so excited for it. We're going to film episode uh, season two in Peru. We were going to go next week, but there's some um, there's some things going on in Peru with some uh, uh, some 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 tr buses or trains not going out. So we're going to go in November. That's very exciting. I'm looking forward to all that's yeah. coming. Is there something you'd like to tell us about that I've not yet asked you about? Well, my brand new movie, The Black Knight Satellite, uh, Beyond the Signal documentary, came out about a month ago. So if something advanced could be contacting us or sending signals from an unknown craft here close to Earth, 
possibly Epsilon Boetus, what is their purpose for being here? They just show up and the governments of the world cannot capture them? They are elusive, but sometimes visible? Could there be more evidence of our government and other governments coming in contact with the Black Knight satellite? And if so, could the contact be by accident, given our current technology, or on purpose? It aired at limited movie theaters. We were at the red carpet event at the Imagine Theater in Michigan. It was an incredible event. Uh, lots of people came from all over the country. And now it, it's available on Forbidden Knowledge TV, which is on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, uh, the web at 4BK.TV, uh, and also iOS and Google Play App Store. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of that movie. Man, I was researching uh, aerospace, and I came across this uh, forum post about the Black Man Satellite. And I said, what is this? I looked into it. It was about you know, 10 years, 12 years ago. I'm like, what is this? And so as I dug into it, I saw it appeared to be something that was really there. People had been talking about it. I looked a little bit deeper, and I just saw basic standardized YouTube videos about it. nothing really in-depth, just the standard facts that we kind of knew. I said, if this thing is true, we need to dig deeper. I started looking deeper into it. And I was able to make a link between the Black Knight satellite and Enlil from the ancient Sumerian cuneiform tablets, the Babylonian god named Enlil, also known in the Bible as Yahweh. Uh, and so I said, wow, this is his all-seeing eye that he talked about. It has the ability to orbit the earth pole to pole and see what's going on on the planet, see population densities, see uh, farming and everything else. Uh, and so... I said, this is interesting. I think it's linked to this guy. Now, when I looked into the, um, the story about the decoding of the signal that's been picked up from this thing, from Nikola Tesla in the late 1800s to 1950s with radio ham, opera, ham radio operators to 1960 with Duncan Lunan, who was a journalist for Time magazine, that his article about this got published in Time magazine in 1960, that it really exists up there. The military had been tracking it and everything else. The signal says it's coming from the Epsilon Boetus constellation, but where it was in the sky about 13, 11 to 13,000 years ago. So this thing is around the time of the Ice Age, either before or at the end of the Ice Age. It's ancient. And when I saw that, I realized that in the ancient Sumerian text, the owner of the Epsilon Boetus constellation, the owner of it, because people own constellations, people, was Enlil. So I said, this thing is a huge story. Oh my goodness. So I linked it all together and I got some of the top researchers in the world on this documentary and it is crisp. It's one of the most amazing documentaries I think anyone will see to date on the Black Knight Satellite. The all-seeing eye is a fascinating motif in yeah. ancient mythology mm -hmm. and you can find it referenced in embedded into the words of the Bible even. The, yeah. the word Elion, the most high, as a picture, yeah. pictogram references the word mm -hmm. Ruach, which is often understood as the spirit of God, actually mm. references the all-seeing eye that's observing this flooded planet. Mm. It's an amazing topic. Everybody should go and see this movie. Right. Billy, we could talk for ever and a day, and yeah. every answer you've given is really a potential interview all itself. But we'll have to pause in a moment for today. But before yeah. we do that, tell us how we can keep up with all the things that mm. you're up to at the moment. The best way to find out everything that's going on is go to 4biddenknowledge.com, 4-B-I-D-D-E-N-K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G-E.com, and our TV network, which is 4BK.TV. We have over 6,000 videos up there now, a lot of them great documentaries, movies, shows, wisdom teachings, and lectures and conferences from all around the world. So check us out at Forbidden Knowledge. Billy Carson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this will be the first of a number of conversations, the beginning yeah. of a long conversation. But yeah. thank you for joining us today on The Fifth Kind. Thank you so much. Check out our official website at fifthkind.tv.